You're listening to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut, part of Ocus Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Hello, and welcome to Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut. My name is Kevin Wise, and I'm an orthopedic surgery resident in Detroit, Michigan. Hi, everybody. I'm Kim Tucker from Tucson, Arizona. Hi, everyone. I'm Lizzie Lieberman, an orthoplasty surgeon in Portland, Oregon. Hi, everybody. I'm Meg Whitmarsh-Brown, an orthoplasty surgeon in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In this episode, we'll have another edition of the Shortcuts. We'll be discussing several of our hand-selected recent articles from the Journal of Orthoplasty. In this episode, I'm happy to start us off. My publication is titled Safety and Efficacy of Rivaroxaban in Primary Total Hip and Knee Arthroplasty. This is published out of University of Southern California by Pibble et al., including one of our prior guests, Dr. Nate Heckman. This is a database study aiming to compare the safety and efficacy of Rivaroxaban to aspirin and noxaparin. Just for a little bit of background, in 2011, Rivaroxaban was approved for VTE prophylaxis and lower extremity arthroplasty after showing improved efficacy without any increased complications in the randomized controlled trial called Regulation of Coagulation in Orthopedic Surgery to Prevent Deep Venous Thrombosis and Pulmonary Embolism, or the Records Trial. However, since then, some studies have shown increased risks, especially bleeding complications using Rivaroxaban. Their method was to retrospectively identify patients undergoing primary elective total hip and knee arthroplasty from January 2015 to December 2020 using the Premier Healthcare Database. Then these patients were divided into three cohorts. Patients taking aspirin 81 or 325 BHD, any dose of rivaroxaban or any dose of anoxaparin postoperatively. Then directly compared rivaroxaban to aspirin, rivaroxaban to anoxaparin, and then also rivaroxaban given initially first dose on post-op day zero versus post-op day one. There were a little over 800,000 patients who received total knee arthroplasties. 10.8% of them were treated with rivaroxaban, 50.8 with aspirin, and 13.5 with anoxaparin. 445,000 total hip arthroplasties were studied. 9.5 of them were treated with rivaroxaban, 54.4 with aspirin, and 13.4 with anoxaparin. In terms of bleeding complications, specifically for total knee arthroplasty, rivaroxaban demonstrated an increased risk of anemia, postoperative transfusion, and hematoma when compared to aspirin. There was also an increased risk of anemia and a decreased risk of transfusion when comparing rivaroxaban to anoxaparin. These trends also held true for total hip arthroplasty in terms of bleeding complications. In terms of prothrombotic complications in total knee arthroplasty, there is an increased risk of PE and DVT when compared to aspirin, but a decreased risk of MI. When comparing rivaroxaban to anoxaparin, there is a lower risk of MI, but no difference in PE or DVT. Interestingly, this profile was a little bit different in total hip arthroplasty in terms of prothrombotic complications. When comparing rivaroxaban to aspirin, there's a decreased risk of MI, but no increased risk of DVT or PE. Also, when comparing rivaroxaban to anoxaparin, there is a decreased risk of combined complications, prothrombotic, but no difference in individual complications. Also, the administration of rivaroxaban on post-op day zero compared to post-op day one increased the risk of acute blood loss anemia, but decreased the risk of transfusion. So in conclusion, as many of us know, aspirin still provides an overall very safe profile for optimizing not only safety, but also efficacy in VTE prophylaxis after primary total knee arthroplasty. 
Differences between the rivaroxaban and aspirin were, were more pronounced than that between aspirin and enoxaparin. We need more data on direct comparison between this aspirin and rivaroxaban in well-matched patients. A couple of the takeaways I had from this, just what I've seen in my training is number one, I thought figure one did a great job of showing in a great visual interpretation of the trends that we've seen here in terms of how much in five years the use of aspirin has increased in terms of, you know, a little under 49% of the time, essentially, to now over 70% of the time. And that's what I've at least seen in my training is the vast majority of our patients are going home on aspirin, BID. And that's been with the decrease in warfarin and, you know, anoxaparin and rivaroxaban. And what they also show here is a little bit of an increase in Eliquis, which they didn't, you know, or Apixaban, which we didn't look at, but that's what I've seen, which is a little more popular than the Rivaroxaban or Xarelto. So question I have for everyone here is what your indications are for using one of these oral anticoagulants and are you using the Rivaroxaban or Apixaban? What is your one of choice? I'll start, I guess. My indications for using the newer direct oral anticoagulants are patients who are high risk, and that's usually a personal or a significant family history of DVT specifically. When you ask patients if they've had a blood clot, a lot of them will talk about stroke history. Also, patients who are on any of these, and that can be Pradaxa or, you know, sometimes they're on just whatever medication they're on for their AFib, I will typically resume that for them. My go-to is Eliquis. That's just what insurance companies tend to provide. I give a 30-day supply of it because it's also what insurance companies tend to approve. And if a patient gets a longer uh, prescription for that or something that's not covered, they are horrified by how expensive some of these medications um, still are, and especially when you compare it to aspirin, which costs pennies. Um, so yeah, for high-risk patients, I'll still use it. And I think this is a great paper. I think any of these retrospective or data-based reviews should be taken with a grain of salt, knowing that the Rivaroxaban group is going to be a high-risk patient. I think our standard is still to preferentially give higher-risk patients anoxaparin, Rivaroxaban, or the other direct oral anticoagulants. So if we say that they're similar, it's similar. And as you said, Kevin, it's similar, but in different patients, probably. I liked this paper also because I think it tells people who are standardly giving this medication that maybe they should consider aspirin as opposed to this. Because I know there are a number of people who are still giving this in the community on a regular basis. And, you know, there's certainly disadvantages to it. And, and you know, from my own standpoint, I would only do it for high risk, just like Lizzie just said, but the wounds are just awful to deal with. So these patients, I'll often immobilize for a couple, two, three days after surgery, just to make sure that their wounds actually close up and stop leaking. But these are the ones that if you, you get a phone call three days after surgery and they're leaking, it, that's my first question. Kim, will you ever put a Provena on them? I will if I am very concerned about it. But usually intraoperatively, I'll honestly just put them in a neomobilizer for a couple of days and then tell them to take it off their physical therapy later that week. And as long as they're not draining, I don't necessarily use the Provena, but I will if I have uh, revisions, of course. Lizzie, do you use the Provena on the OR right away? No, I actually stopped. I mean, I, I think that it's more important for these patients to get a seal. So I am in favor these days of doing more of a compressive dressing rather than some kind of VAC-assisted dressing, just because I think sometimes if you've got something that's sucking on the wound and it continues to drain, continues to drain, they don't have that opportunity to just form a seal. I trained at SD and some of these changes were kind of going on when I was there as a resident. And we started using the incisional vax a lot more frequently. Anecdotally, I've been in practice just coming up on a year now. I have been using the incisional vax for high-risk patients. And I, 
I do kind of, if they're going to be on these, just because I've seen some bad seromas form and some issues, but I agree. I do put compression in as well as the incisional vac. I don't just use the incisional vac. We, you know, not necessarily putting them in a huge bulky Jones, but just something with some gentle compression to hold the space down as well. And even with the vac, the containers rarely really, you know, they're not really sucking fluid through these incisions, at least what I have seen. You guys have you guys have seen more than I have at this point, but I've been lucky so far that it hasn't been too, too much of a problem. Is there a data on like aspirin after hip fractures or something like that? Yes. Because yes. I see these patients all the time who like are on Xarelto or Eliquis after hip fractures that the hospitals just put them on. And I am always like, I'm wondering why. You know that yeah. stuff then? Yes. So our system at UNM that was led by trauma and actually the trauma surgeons from general surgery is switching everybody over to using aspirin as the primary anticoagulation away from lovinox and heparin even. And that was led by the general surgeons and ortho has adopted that as well. And there is, there's definitely, I want to say it's JOT data that has supported using aspirin as the primary anticoagulation for, for hip fractures. So we've kind of moved to that pretty much exclusively. Oh, my only thing with the, the aspirin in the extra patients is I think maybe some of our medicine data is a little bit different from what we see in terms of what agents we should be using. So I've gotten a lot of pushback trying to prescribe aspirin after a hip fracture if they're admitted to hospitalists, which we love the hospitalists. So sometimes I just kind of acquiesce and do whatever they recommend. But I think there is some orthopedic based data that it's probably safe. And maybe we need to get the, the hospitalists or medical teams a a little bit more on board with that before it's universally adopted. I think, Lizzie, that's a really good point. Just in terms of multidisciplinary interaction and intervention for anticoagulation, I mean, we're that's something we've been working on at our place too, is just getting everyone on the same page, especially for even the complex joint replacement things that, you know, we're not really reading the same data, which as always is problematic. Okay. I think that's a great discussion. Next, Kim, if you want to talk about your publication. Great. So the next paper is out of UCSF. It's called Patients Who Have Limited English Proficiency Have Decreased Utilization of Revision Surgeries After Hip and Knee Arthroplasty. This also is a retrospective cohort study. They looked at about 8,000 hip and knee arthroplasty surgeries. 577 of these patients had limited English proficiency, and they found a significant difference in utilization of revision surgery at one and two years after the initial surgery. They concluded that having limited English proficiency was an independent risk factor for decreased utilization of revision surgery at up to two years post-total hip arthroplasty and total knee arthroplasty. These patients may face barriers to accessing postoperative care despite initial contact with an orthopedic surgeon or orthopedic surgery group. So... uh, I was thinking about this after reading this paper. We know about well-documented disparities in healthcare. These involve increased length of hospital stay and decreased discharge to home and worse outcomes. And this paper found similar findings. There's also an increase of post-operative complications and increased in this population, excuse me, but revision surgery is still underutilized. And at the end of this paper in the discussion, they did say you know, some things that maybe patients could do, but I was hoping to discuss with you all what you thought we could do better as a specialty to help these patients out. And I know, Meg, you're really involved with this population. And I wondered if you can give us a little insight on how you manage this in your practice. 
it's very challenging. So we are in a majority minority city and state in New Mexico. And I would say in our practice, it's a probably 60 to 70% native English speakers and the rest are between Spanish and um, Diné or Navajo and other languages. Um, And that brings up a particularly large challenge because we don't always have translators for all the languages that are spoken in our community. And it is certainly a challenge. I think we try to engage family members who are often the best interpreters, but that brings in other complicating issues, especially when there are cultural challenges at play or just cultural differences between what is and is not kind of the norm. And you're relying on family members who you don't necessarily know what their bias is. In any family situation, obviously, we're told, you know, the family member is not necessarily always the best interpreter, but that's often what we rely on here. I think one thing that has been really key for me personally, I am relatively comfortable speaking in Spanish with my patients, had many, many years of Spanish training and then trained in Los Angeles for nine years and Texas and now New Mexico. So we've had a large Spanish speaking population, but even then just taking the time to bring the interpreter in for these really complex conversations. We all want to keep moving through clinic, but the reality is we really need to have the hospital-based interpreters and take the time to go through these complex conversations because these are difficult conversations to have even in your native language, right? Like we struggle sometimes to get patients on board with PJI management, even when we speak the same language at baseline. So I think having a realistic understanding of your own limitations in another language and the limitations of the maybe the people you have available to you to help and just keep repeating the conversation as necessary calling these patients back if you're really worried to make sure they're not missing appointments not skipping appointments that you're not losing them to follow up and really making the effort to bring them back to clinic and repeat the conversation do you all find that you schedule more frequent follow-ups with this patient population as well, as opposed to just, you know, kind of stopping at the 12-week visit, maybe scheduling a three-month, six-month visit, something like that, just to have it on the book or not? I haven't had that experience necessarily with my primaries, but it is something to think about. Lizzie, how about you? Yeah, I don't do that right now, honestly, but I've been thinking about this a fair amount after reading this paper and think that maybe it's something that I wonder too, sometimes I feel like maybe this is a patient population that has a higher no-show rate. So not just scheduling them, but confirming appointments and providing resources to help them get to clinic. Thinking about it too, I don't have data to tell you either, but are these patients who are likely to come back, you know, a few days with a draining wound, whereas the patients who have an easier time talking to your medical staff on the phone the second they call, you say, come in, let's take a look. So are we delaying a little bit because of these language barriers? And antidotally, I think probably in my own practice, I do have that issue. I think so too. And health literacy comes into play here as well. So that compounds this issue. And I I like your point about the telephone too, because I mean, my fancy golf playing patients, they call me about any little thing going on. But these folks, sometimes they'll show up in your office with like, a wound that's been draining for two weeks and you're like, well, why didn't you call me? And uh, I think, you know, it's maybe even just not culturally appropriate to complain about things or they don't know that, that that's something that's wrong. They thought that was how it was supposed to be. So 
Watts gets lost in translation. So Linda Suleiman gave a talk at AUKUS, I want to say two years ago, where she demonstrated the social barrier intake for splash page that they have in um, Epic at their clinic at Northwestern that kind of addresses some of the issues that Lizzie, you brought up about, you know, do they have a ride? Do they have phones? Do they have, or internet? I know that seems silly, but honestly, 44% of our patients here in my clinic don't have a working email address. We have patients who do not have running water and electricity. And so sometimes doing those social needs evaluations is really important. And I think we don't necessarily do a great job of that on the intake side that we could certainly improve on. Yeah. So when I I was reading this article, one of the things I've been doing in my practice right now is trying to, you know, get more patient resources, um, considering like a patient engagement platform that I can partner with. And I was looking at the AUKUS website and they have resources for patients that are in Spanish as well as Hindu, actually. And some of the patient engagement platforms will allow you to translate your materials into different languages too. So I think we can do this better, but Meg, you made a great point that sometimes it's resources too. If I've got an app that I'm trying to get patients engaged in, well, the patients who don't have access to a cell phone are at an extreme disadvantage. And so how do we make resources that aren't just language, but also resource neutral for all these people? I thought this kind of highlighted also when we talk about the issue of access, that sometimes if we probably stop that endpoint too soon and we think about, oh, well, you know, I made a primary hip or knee arthroplasty available to someone who maybe didn't have it in the past. And we fail to really think about the longevity of, you know, our surgeries are supposed to make huge impact on people's lives for decades. And we think that just because we provided that, that it's, it's improvement, but it's clearly not completely standardized. And that's what we're, we're going for. So I think that this really highlighted well that even though that's an improvement, we still have a long ways to go in terms of providing something that we all believe in everyone should have access to because it makes a better society for all of us. Well, with that, I think, Meg, this would be a good transition into your paper talking a little bit more about health policy in orthopedics. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. So that's a good dovetail. My paper that we talked about was Health Policy Views and Political Advocacy of Arthroplasty Surgeons, a survey of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeon Members. So this is by uh, Wilbur et al., performed by the AUKUS Advocacy Committee. So they sent out a 22-question survey to the AUKUS membership over a six-month period in 2022, asking questions that were focused on three general areas. The first were just demographics, including respondents' political affiliation. The second was policy views, including the perceptions of current policy issues facing the arthroplasty community. And the third were questions about respondents' advocacy participation levels. And overall, they had a 9% response rate, which is relatively low. However, they did do an analysis that shows that that has a 5% error based on the membership. So they felt confident that this was a relatively acceptable sample. Probably unsurprisingly, they found that a plurality of the respondents identify as Republican and that more than a third of the respondents were at least 20 years into practice. 95% of the people who did respond to this survey listed preserving physician reimbursement and equitable fee schedule as their top advocacy priority. And the other major concerns that were voiced were dealing with the burden of prior authorization. About 53% of respondents said this was a top priority. 
And then tort reform was tied with issues regarding CMS regulation at 39%. Interestingly to me, in this group, about 40% of the respondents were currently enrolled in a bundled payment program, which we're all familiar with as one of the major CMS programs that are affecting arthroplasty at the moment. And equally as many, about 41% had actually recently dropped out of a bundle, citing the financial issues and losses associated with being involved in that kind of an alternative care model. One thing that the authors pulled out of the ad hoc comments that returned during the survey were numerous responses by physicians that they'd become disheartened by the advocacy process and that our goals weren't really aligned with true wins, quote unquote, for surgeons. And they pointed out, we fight for our a smaller cut in the pay scales as opposed to no cut at all. And a majority felt that even if they wanted to participate, they don't have the time due to the requirements of their practice. So I thought those were all kind of interesting and frankly, a little concerning findings about where we are as a group. But overall, I thought the best poll quote that the authors had was, though many surgeons may prefer the surgical theater to its political counterpart, the absence in policy discussion seeds influence to other potentially competitive groups. So I kind of wanted to see, I know a bunch of us have been involved in the advocacy committee or different health policy. We even did one on the podcast with one of the co-authors of this paper, but how can we better engage our colleagues and make this more of an optimistic opportunity and less of a drag or what seems to be a little bit of a soul suck for the people who responded to this survey? You know, I liked one of the things that Max Courtney said, which was to try to get involved more locally, because I feel like you can feel like you're doing a little more locally than necessarily nationally. So I would say that's like one thing that I took away from that little bit longer discussion. How about you, Lizzie? I've been given that advice and I actually got involved with my local organization and that has been huge in kind of opening my eyes to the voice that we actually do have. And Meg, as you said it, if we don't have a voice, it empowers others to have a stronger voice. So locally, you know, we had a bill that was talking about podiatry scope of practice. And if the orthopedic surgeons didn't have a group, we didn't have a voice in that conversation. And it's important that we hear multiple sides in determining that type of policy. I also just think that the time thing is such a barrier, which we've identified before, and this paper supports that again. And sometimes I've heard this, that it's not just the time that strengthens our voice. We don't need people on the Hill in huge numbers. We need the number of the percentage of our group that donates, even if it's a dollar. If you say 100% of your organization donates to a cause, that speaks so, so, so loudly. So it doesn't need to be a huge financial contribution. It doesn't need to be a big time contribution. But just saying that we all support the same cause, I think, is helpful and gives us a lot of power. I thought another interesting part of this paper, Meg, was when that surgeons identified revision hip and knee arthroplasty as procedures that had the greatest mismatch between expenditure of healthcare resources and physician reimbursement. I have colleagues in my current town who are won't even do revisions because of this. They're saying that like, oh, I only work at surgery centers or I don't have time for this. And it's hard because it's really a lot to have to do these. And that's one of the things I know they're focusing on, but that would be a really great one because I think we're going to need so many 
folks doing these in the future, that if they made it worth our while, instead of taking two times as long to do a knee revision or a two times as long for a hip and 1.5 for a knee, I think that would probably allow some people to do that if they were reimbursed appropriately. I totally agree. And I mean, I think it also points to this sort of perverse incentive that gets set up by some of these changes. I'm a proponent of a lot of the value-based healthcare changes that have come around. But some of these things that do really emphasize productivity and kind of efficiency and pumping out more cases and doing fewer revisions and fewer complex cases kind of end up biting ourselves because we're now concentrating all of these. By doing more cases, we're inevitably going to end up with more revisions and those revisions are getting concentrated at certain centers. So they're usually going to academic centers or health safety net centers. And that actually makes it very difficult to sustain those practices because you need to have a healthy payer mix if you're going to be able to take on these complex cases. And a lot of the complex issues are often many, many patients they're otherwise sicker patients. And so now you can see the collapse of these systems. And an example of that was Hennepin County in Philadelphia that closed because all of these complex cases were being filtered into one center that didn't have the resources to handle that burden. So Meg, you mentioned that a lot of these survey responders were 20 years in practice. I'm wondering, we've got Kevin here. Kevin, targeting you as finishing up your training and you're about to be a practicing orthopedic surgeon, how do we target you to be more politically active and participate in some of these advocacy issues? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So ironically, when I started going to some of the AUKUS events and conferences over the last several years, you know, they talk a lot about education, research, advocacy. And I felt like I was starting to get my feet wet in the first two, but I knew almost nothing. And I was, you know, kind of embarrassed about that. So, and I think that especially in our field, we are such a large percentage of CMS's budget that we will always be a target. Our codes and everything we do, it's the low hanging fruit to go after the thing that a small change in primary total hip and knee arthroplasty makes a big change on their bottom line on their end. So I felt like I wanted to be somewhat involved in in my career. And something that stuck with me was going to these, I went to the Hill last year, actually, and to do some lobbying. And they said, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And that just kind of made me feel like, well, I don't think everyone has the time, like you said, to do this because we're busy. But if we aren't at least aware of the problems, the sooner you're aware about these things, the more you can you know, help donate to the pack, or for example, or keep your eye out a little bit more for these issues arising and the small victories that our advocacy efforts do make. So I think that would be the, the biggest thing is to just tell people earlier on in their training and residency that these advocacy wins don't happen out of thin air. And if you don't get involved early on, then your voice isn't going to be heard. I would make a plug really fast too. For residents, the AAOS does have an advocacy fellowship. I believe it's a year-long program that you can get involved in if you're a second, third, or fourth year resident, and you can apply for that through the AAOS. And then AUKUS does have a health policy fellowship as well, shameless plug. And that's a two-year fellowship opportunity for fellows and attendings in their first five years of practice. 
It's great. I don't know if we could promote AOS on this. I am the fellow for right now, actually, for AOS OrthoPack. Yeah, so I just didn't know. That's amazing. That's great. I was allowed to to do that. But yeah, so I think it is great and it paid huge dividends and you feel like you're much more than no. I think Bozik is a good bridge for the AOS and AUKUS, so we can take this one. I think it's really intimidating to not understand this stuff, actually. So like, you know, when I started just kind of getting more into this at this point, I didn't know what these acronyms even stood for. And so I think for a lot of people, like just it's like a box of unknown. So I think having these discussions and going to parts of the meeting that maybe you're uncomfortable with, I would encourage people to try that and just at least get like introduced to these topics and uh, comfortable with the verbiage because it's a lot. Awesome. Well, with that, we can probably move to our last article. Lizzie, if you want to tell us about yours. This article is titled, Underweight Patients Are at Increased Risk for Complications Following Total Hip Arthroplasty. This paper comes out of Brown with the lead author, Christopher McDonald. So this is a Pearl Diver database study investigating the association between BMI and revision or complications after total hip arthroplasty. The authors hypothesized that underweight patients are similar to morbidly obese patients with increased risk of revision or complications. They define their underweight group as patients with a BMI of less than 20. There was an obese group with a BMI of 30 to 40 and a morbidly obese group with BMIs over 40. Patients were matched by age, sex, and Charleston comorbidity index. They studied the one-year revision rate medical complications, as well as surgical complications. So overall, they had 2,484 patients in the underweight group, which was only 4.3% of the patients that were included. They found that the underweight patients were more often women and more often had higher CCI scores. So the primary findings that were studied in this paper, the authors found that underweight patients had increased odds of total hip revision, sepsis, and periprosthetic fracture compared to matched normal weight patients. They compared obese and morbidly obese patients to their normal group and found that they also had higher odds of revisions, as well as basically all of the medical and surgical complications. Finally, they looked at the underweight cohort compared to obese patients and found that the underweight group had higher odds of aseptic loosening, dislocation, and periprosthetic fractures, which I found was really interesting. So I think we talk a lot about BMI or weight as a modifiable risk factor, but most of the time we're referring to patients who are overweight and we want them to lose weight. So I think potentially identifying underweight patients, and I don't know that this is known, but if we can optimize their weight and get them to a normal BMI category, um, is that changing their overall risk? So I picked this paper because I think that it's worth discussing cutoffs. And if we have BMI cutoffs, I'm I'm interested to just sort of poll everybody and see if you have a cutoff for an upper BMI. And if so, do you have a lower BMI? Because I've honestly never encountered that before. So we do. We have hard stop criteria at 40, but with a plus minus 5% window and then anything outside of that needs to go to our arthroplasty committee to decide if, you know, they're outliers. 
But I think it's a great point. We don't talk about the underweight patients. I wonder if looking at the complications that they had, if some of that's really to do with uh, just bone quality in general and osteoporosis, because we know that actually heavier patients tend to actually have better bone quality because we're, we're stressing it more. So I wonder if rather than getting people to gain weight, we can target their overall bone health. Because I feel like that would be difficult too, especially, you know, to tell people you've got to gain some weight. Yeah, I agree. The other thing I want to mention on this one that I was thinking about is muscle quantity and quality. Because if I remember it was, there's a higher risk of dislocation. Was that right, Lizzie? Because, you know, these folks that are super thin, I mean, I worry about them dislocating more than a lot of my like mid-sized to large larger patients, actually. And I hadn't thought about it until I read this paper, but maybe these are people we consider putting DM cups in. I actually pay particular attention to getting just perfect, as perfect as I can, um, cup alignment in these folks, because I really do worry about their muscles just being non-existent effectively. That's how I think of it. So I try to put them in just a little bit of extra antiversion so they don't dislocate posteriorly. But maybe these are folks I should use a DM cup in, but I hadn't thought about that until this paper. So this paper has got me thinking a lot about just the soft tissue envelope in general. And in our obese patients, I think sometimes they stand with their legs externally rotated or abducted because they're soft tissue. With these very underweight patients, yeah, they have different tissues. They have different configurations. And we're looking at an x-ray. But an x-ray doesn't show us, well, it can show us shadows, but it's not showing us a dynamic picture of how patients move and how they position themselves just in regular life. And so I think that the soft tissue plays a bigger role, whether it's muscle quantity, how much tension they're getting around that hip to keep it in place. But I I thought that dislocation risk was particularly interesting too. When I read this, I think that, again, this will, as we create more multiple disciplinary clinics, this will tie again into just like overall nutritional status. This will eventually become part of a larger preoperative patient profile that we're able to optimize a little better, whether that's a, you know, a year before the first time you see the patient or several months before surgery. It's looking at whatever, maybe it's, it's an albumin because I think that's, I think a lot of times that's really what the, what the BMI is kind of a, a surrogate for. When I look at the, the sepsis, it's not only do they have the mechanical issues, but they clearly also have an underlying malnutrition, I think is what we're getting at that puts them at risk for other things. They're not going to be able to create that ingrowth interface, whether you're going to use cement, it obviously changes that, but they're not going to be able to fight off these small nidices of infection that maybe another patient could clear. So I think that's what this will eventually turn into. One of the questions that comes up a lot when we talk about some of these risk factors, you know, especially when we talk about approach and a lot of the more traditional things is at what point is there kind of a diminishing return in terms of drawing cutoffs and lines? It all kind of goes together in my head with some of the policy decisions that we have talked about and reducing costs and reducing risk. But I think Kevin made the point earlier on with one of our papers that we want to have access to this healthcare entity for as many people as possible. And at some point, do we kind of identify so many risk factors that we slice the population down so much that who then becomes the ideal surgical candidate that is going to get essentially cherry pick who is getting cut out? I mean, obviously these risk factors are concerning, but 2.5% 
dislocation rate doesn't sound that much different than the historical dislocation rate we've seen for many, many, many years. One of the things I like about this paper is a lot of times I think we gravitate towards cutoffs and things that make our lives easier, more convenient. So it's harder to do a hip replacement in a patient whose BMI is 45. So we can then use that information and say, sorry, your insurance won't cover this surgery until you get your weight down. Smokers have increased risk of complications. Sorry, I can't do your surgery until you get rid of that modifiable risk factor. But then there's this one underweight patients where we would say, oh, shoot, that's the easy surgery that I still want to do. I need to spend extra time and energy to optimize that patient probably. So I agree, Meg. We're doing ourselves a disservice, I think, if we impose these cutoffs and then allow other entities like insurance to say they will or will not cover when maybe instead we just need to identify risk factors so we can use extended antibiotic prophylaxis or provide nutritional counseling preoperatively or something like that. So we have to be a little bit careful with cutoffs. We also have to be careful about choosing what works best for us or makes our lives easier versus where are the true risk factors. I would love to operate on a patient whose BMI is less than 20, but maybe that's not going to work out so well for me. I think Jordy has some good data on that out of Stanford at the VA up in Palo Alto, looking at patients, kind of obese and super obese patients who still do successfully undergo total hip. And that is, I mean, to your exact point, it is difficult because the days that I do a BMI of 39 or 40 hip First, they're longer, they're more tiring. I'm not as satisfied with my job that day, but at the same time, we have to be careful of who we're excluding and why. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us on today's episode of Journal Arthroplasties the Cut. If you have any questions, comments, or topics that you'd like to see us present, please feel free to email us at joathecut at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time. Thank you for joining us for the Journal of Arthroplasties The Cut. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.